so Groot? You can't. You'll die. Why are you doing this? Why? Guardians of the Galaxy for the first time and being pleasantly surprised at how entertained I was. But I remember this scene, the aircraft is going to crash and Groot surrounds his team with branches. They know that in doing so means that he is going to die in the process of saving them. And maybe you have seen it, and maybe in that moment there was some emotion, and, and, and then all of a sudden you went, wait a minute, it's a talking tree and a talking raccoon. There can't be any emotion, right, with this. But I show you that image today because it's an image that I want you to associate with the superpower that we're going to talk about today. But the superpower that we're talking about today is not fantasy. It's for real. But that image, I want you to hold. I'm glad you made it. I really am. I appreciate you guys doing what you did in order to be here uh, today. Obviously, I'm tired of this stuff. I'm, I'm, it's like every Saturday, somebody, and, and just again, want to thank uh, all the folks who come here early and they work hard to push parking lots and sidewalks and uh, it has been a crazy year in terms of winter. It's going to be a while before we all say, we haven't had a winter in a long time. We've had one. We have had one. And days like this, I hate it when folks can't get here. But there's also a part of me that looks forward to moments like this because I know that those who are here, they want to be here. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some people who, for safety reasons, they don't need to drive. They don't need to do that. But I'm just saying, if you are here, it's because you want to be here. And when a group of people that want to meet with God come together, there are some remarkable things that can happen. Galatians chapter 5 is where we've been hanging out in this superpower series. And this is what it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, that's where the power comes from. That's this imagery of superpower. It's God himself his spirit who lives within every person who belongs to Jesus. What is he doing in us? What is he working in us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And today we have arrived at the next to last, gentleness. Gentleness. Now my question is, gentleness does, does that sound like superpower to you? It, it almost makes me laugh when, when we get to a, a word like this, superpowers, gentleness, really? 
In the Bible, when you see the word gentleness, sometimes it's translated meekness. Sometimes it's translated humble. But this word gentleness, I, I got to thinking about the church conferences that, that happen in my world. I think about the, the ones that are the, the most well-known. I mean, uh, maybe it's a global leadership summit. I mean, that sounds big, doesn't it? It is big. Uh, I think about a, a Catalyst Conference, a Drive Conference, a Thrive Conference. I don't know anybody who this year is going to say, I'm going to the Gentleness Conference. It's, it's not a word you would typically use for people to think about moving forward with any kind of power. When we think about Christianity, we talk about how God makes us bold. We talk about being more than conquerors, and we usually don't talk about gentleness. But I want to challenge you this week, do your own, do your own search. Just, just get your Bible app, whatever it is, and, and check out the word gentleness. You, you will start to find places like 1 Peter where he tells us if you really want to see a marriage like God intends for it to be, then this spirit of gentleness must be present. The word is there when he talks about it. Ephesians says, if you want to see a church body actually unified the way it's supposed to be, then you know what's required? Gentleness. He uses the word in that, in that text. Timothy tells us that when it comes to, to church leadership, gentleness is required. Titus simply says, always be gentle to everyone. That's pretty broad. Every relationship, every circumstance, he says, I want there to be this aspect of gentleness connected to your faith. It's even connected to the boldness that we're supposed to have. I'm going to show you this verse. Some of you are familiar with 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It reads like this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. All right, we're familiar with that kind of language. It's, it's this imagery of, of be ready to, we talk about defend your faith. Be, be ready to give an answer for what you believe. And, and, and if we're not careful, we, we walk away as sort of this picture of I'm, I'm ready, right? I'm, I'm armed and I'm ready and I'm ready for this fight and I'm going to be able to defend. But we forget the last phrase. There's another line in this verse that reads like this. But do this with gentleness and respect. It's in there. We just often stop before we get to the word. We have a tendency to, 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 to leave out the last line. Now, just so you know, the context of this whole passage is saying when people are threatening you because of your faith, when people are mistreating you because of your faith. This is not the context of you get, your, you get your glasses out and put a target on somebody and go see if you can win the argument of faith. No, this is about when you so live a life with characteristic, even like gentleness, and people then threaten you because of your faith, the way you are to react is to continue to respond with gentleness. Have you figured out yet that if you speak the truth, but you say it the wrong way, 
then oftentimes you were better to actually not speak the truth. Now, if you hadn't figured that out yet, I'm telling you, it is true. Some of you are like, no, you speak the truth no matter what. No, you speak the truth in love. And so if you speak the truth, but you say it in the wrong way, many times it would have just been better if you didn't speak the truth. I think there are lots of parents who have experienced this over the years. I still talk at times with people that parents lay their head on the pillow at night and they are so frustrated, why can't I get my kid to listen to me? And I'm not saying this is every circumstance, but I'm saying sometimes the circumstance is it's not what you tell them, it's how you tell them. And there's a difference in trying to win an argument and winning their heart. Gentleness. There's a story about a Brahmin, which is a member of the highest class in India, who had the opportunity to meet a Christian missionary. This Christian missionary had lived among uh, the people for a number of years, and the day finally came when the two sat down over a, a cup of tea, and it was interesting to hear the Brahmin compare the missionary to a mango tree. Now, I'm a mango fan, so I think that's always a good comparison. But here was his point. He said, with a mango tree, all the branches hang with fruit. And as people pass by the mango tree, what they often do is they will pick up a stick and they will hit the tree. They, they will pick up a rock and they will throw it at the tree. How does the tree respond? The Brahmin says the tree responds by dropping its fruit at the feet of the very people who strike the blow to the tree. And he says, at the close of the season, here stands this tree. It is scarred. It is often battered. Leaves are torn off. Sometimes branches are broken. But in the next year, that mango tree bears even more fruit than it did the previous one. That, for me, is the picture of the power of gentleness that we're talking about today. When Paul uses the word for gentleness, it is a very particular Greek word that even Aristotle tried to give definition to. And this is how Aristotle def defined, this is what gentleness is. He said, it's the ability to bear reproaches and slights with moderation, not to embark on revenge quickly, not to be easily provoked to anger, but to be set free from bitterness and contentiousness, having tranquility stability in spirit. One of the most powerful images for the word, for me, is a word that is associated with a bridle and reins, like for a horse. And it is often used to describe what happens when a, a wild horse, a wild stallion, receives a bridle and suddenly it has not lost any of its power, but it is power under control. That is exactly what gentleness is all about. My, one of my favorite definitions of gentleness is trusting God with every circumstance and then treat people as if you do so. I'm going to say it again. 
You trust God with every circumstance, and then you treat people as though you trust him with every circumstance. You treat people as though you have turned the reins over to God. So God, this is my clock, my time, it's yours. God, this is, this is my wallet, this is my resources, it's yours. God, these are my abilities, these are my relationships. God, these, these are my reactions to people and circumstances. God, all this, it's in your hands. Now, what we're saying is, that's not natural. To respond that way is not natural. It is supernatural. And it is to be cultivated in us. So, I want to show you one practical way that the Scripture describes how this gentleness, this superpower of gentleness is cultivated in us. And you don't have to go far in the book of Galatians. If you've already got it marked where you're going to Galatians chapter 5 every week when we're reading it together, all you got to do is maybe you don't even even have to turn the page because Galatians chapter 6 gives us a beautiful picture. So I'm just going to read it to you first. And then I'm going to give you the statement of what I think what I think's being said in these verses and then we'll go back a little bit and say, hey, is this really what it says? All right? Check it out. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. What? What's the word? Gently. It's the word. Now, isn't that wild? I'm saying you do the search this week and you will be shocked at how many times this word gentleness shows up across the scriptures. So here's an example. Somebody's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, you restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now again, since gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit... Since, since gentleness is being described as this work that's going on in us, it means it's being cultivated, it means it's being grown, then how does that grow in us? How does that happen? By God's Spirit's power. Well, here's the statement that I'm going to give you. And then again, let's talk about it a little bit. Gentleness grows from a realistic view of our own condition and an empathetic view of another's situation. Now again, I'm not taking the Spirit's power out of this definition. I'm saying this doesn't happen without the Spirit of God working power in our lives, growing gentleness in us. But what is the part for us? What, what are we doing to lean into how the Spirit's growing us in gentleness? Gentleness grows from a realistic view of our own condition and an empathetic view of another's situation. Let's talk about it. The context of Galatians is you got the Apostle Paul who's talking to the Christians at Galatia. That's why it's called Galatians. 
It's about 15 years after the resurrection. But there's a group of people in Galatian called the Judaizers. Now, as you can tell, they're connected to Judaism. These Judaizers say, hey, unless you're doing what we're doing, then you're really not a follower of Jesus. It isn't enough to just believe. It's not enough to just put a faith in Jesus. You have to keep these parts of the law also. you got to check these boxes along with that. And in case you don't know, that's in contrast to what the good news really is about how by grace through faith we are made right with him. We don't do things in order to make a right standing with God. It is out of our right standing with God that moves us to want to do those things that God says are right. Well, it's causing division. This kind of message among the the, the believers, it's causing division and it's causing people to stumble. And what it produces are views of superiority and views of inferiority. Oh, you haven't done what we're doing as the Judaizers? You're, You're not living out these laws like we're living out? I guess you don't really love Jesus like we do. And you got these views that become superiority and inferiority. Now, I'm going to ask this question knowing the answer. Come on. You know what it's like to play the comparison game? Sure you do. Our only question would be, you mean today? Right? Yeah, we know what it's like to play the comparison game. Maybe the comparison game for some of us at times has looked like arrogance when we were further along in a particular area than somebody else was. Right? Okay, maybe I'm not as far as I, I, I need to be, but have you seen her? Have you, have you seen him? And so there's an arrogance. I'm further along. The other part of the comparison game can be envy because they are further along than you. That They've made more progress than you. The point I want us to see is that whether it is this arrogance or it is envy, whether it's superiority or it's inferiority, they both stem from the same underlying thing. And in order to understand that thing, we just need to back up one verse from where we read in Galatians chapter 6. It's the last verse of Galatians chapter 5. Verse 26 reads this way. Let us not become what? Conceited. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So Paul says, look, whether you are provoking others out of your view of superiority or whether you are envying others out of a view of inferiority, both of those things are in opposition to gentleness because both of those things stem from conceit. Now that word conceit comes from a compound word. So so two words, empty and glory. Empty and glory. You put them together, empty of glory, empty of value, empty of worth. It's when you feel like You're not valuable. It's when you feel like you're not worth 
And it'll drive you to do two things. It'll either drive you to cover up that emptiness, emptiness that you feel, which means you have to experience success. It's got to be accolades. It's got to be fame in order to cover up the emptiness of value that I feel. Or the opposite is I'll play the victim. I'll play the victim and I'll throw a pity party and I'll say, well, if I had what you had, if, if I just had what they had, but one way or the other, we cover up that void, that emptiness in us. Paul says, don't provoke from, from superiority. Don't envy from inferiority. Because this thing's conceit, it is dangerous. Conceit is an inflated thing that comes from a deflated thing. What I mean is, it's an inflated sense of worth. I'm making myself to be much. But what it really comes from is what's deflated deep inside of me. There's this void inside that I think I'm not valuable. And that vacuum inside our soul will try to suck up all the glory in the room to cover the nothingness that I feel. But gentleness Gentleness does not grow from an inflated view of who I am. Gentleness does not grow from a deflated view of who I am. Gentleness grows from a realistic view of who I am in Jesus. So Paul says then in verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Now suddenly that makes sense, doesn't it? He's saying, you, you think you're something when you're not. He said, I'm just, I'm reminding you who you are. Stop trying to be something when you're really nothing. The Judaizers felt like they were something because they were keeping all the rules and they were making everybody else feel like they were nothing because they weren't able to keep the rules. And he says, stop thinking you're something. And in this case, he says, when you're really nothing. Now, we go, well, isn't that a bit harsh? I mean, to say, that, to say that we're nothing. Paul's not a guy who walks around depressed all the time, is he? He's not. Paul's not a guy who, who walks around all the time. Um, in fact, I would say this guy has a boldness that cannot be matched except for maybe a handful of people in the entire history of mankind. That's how I would describe him. There's probably not a handful of people in the history of mankind that could match the boldness that this guy's got. So what is this about nothing? Well, if you hear Paul talk, he's got this confidence in Christ. He knows who he is in Christ Jesus, but when he will describe his life, he realizes who he is without Jesus. And so he'll say things like, I am the least of all the apostles. He'll say that. He'll say, I am the worst of sinners. He'll say that. Why does he say that? Because he realizes that apart from Jesus, apart from the one who now lives within him and has given him all value and worth, he realizes that he's nothing apart from that. But the realistic view now is that he knows Jesus, and so he is bold with everything that he has. His understanding leads him to a freedom from that internal empty glory vacuum that influences so many people. So in our world, when 
somebody gets laid off of a job, somebody can't find a job, somebody's forced into early retirement. Man, how difficult is it for us to respond with gentleness when that's, our, when that's what's been done to us? And it's because we often wrap our worth up in our work. We wrap our worth in our families, in our kids, in our status, in our wealth. And when you strip those things away, we suddenly start to feel this inner stability disappear. And it can be because most of our life we've always been covering up this feeling of nothingness and trying to appear to be something that we're not. Until we have a realistic perspective of our own condition, we're never really going to grow in gentleness. And when struggles come, it's a way of stripping away the outside, and it reveals if what's on the inside is real or it's just veneer. So one more time, I want us to read that verse from Galatians 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Why not? Because when you're provoking and envying each other, he says, it's a picture. It's a picture. It's the indication that, that conceit is what is consuming you. Comparison stems from conceit. But gentleness grows from a right perspective that is not built on what others look like. That's why I think Paul says in verse 4, back to Galatians 6, verse 4, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Now again, we got these Judaizers who are saying, look at us, look at us. We don't just believe in Jesus, but we do A, B, C, and X, Y, Z. Look at us. We don't just believe, but we're better than Sally is. We're better than James is. We're better. And they, they would just, they could call them out. We're better than them because we believe and we keep these rules. Now, we, we're not quite that arrogant, at least on the outside. But on the inside, it looks more for us like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty bad, but you hear what he did? I mean, I'm, I, I, yeah, I, I did. I admit, I, here's where I've messed up, but you know what she's done? And Paul's point here is, if your standard is other people, sure, maybe you may be better than them. I'll encourage you a little bit. You probably always find somebody that you're better than. Seriously, you, you might have to change uh, geographical locations, but you can eventually find somebody that, that you're better than. He's saying, okay, you're comparing yourself to other people, but is that really the standard that we're called to? No. He's saying stop comparing because one day we will all answer for our self. And how can we possibly bear one another's burdens? If we are constantly trying to prove how tall we are by standing on top of other people. How can we bear one another's burdens if we're always trying to make ourselves look better because we're walking on top of somebody 
else. Gentleness grows from a realistic view of our own condition and an empathetic view of another's situation. So what's their situation? Check it out, verse 1 again. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Anyone caught in a sin, he says. It's exactly what it sounds like. There's no trickery there in language. Sin, we're talking about a a, a trespass here. We're talking about doing something contrary to what God says is right, to what God says is good, and it says somebody's caught in that. What's the proper response? Gotcha. No. He says it's to restore. And the word restore was a word often used to describe the resetting of a bone that's broken. Now, if you've ever broken a bone and it needed to be reset, your one hope was that the doctor who was doing the resetting would consider the word gentleness in his action. If you're going to reset a bone that's broken, you want some gentleness displayed in that process. Now, when you take the whole context of Scripture, we got we to just talk about this a quick second. I mean, I believe this context of this passage, because it fits within the context of the rest of the Bible that we read, we're talking about somebody here who is caught in sin. They know they're caught in sin. There is a, I'm going to call it a repentance, and the reason I'm calling it that is because there are other places in the Bible where it talks about when someone sins and there is no repentance. They sin, and then they just keep on sinning. They basically sin and go, yeah, I sin, but there is no repentance. There are other places in the Bible that says we don't overlook that sin. In fact, sometimes there is some very specific language about even at times a separation that happens from them. They sin, there is no repentance, there is a separation. But you read that passage and you will find that even the purpose of the separation in the end, it is so that they will experience what it's like to be out from under the umbrella of God's grace among his people and that it would drive them back. In other words, to be restored. So even in what looks like the harshest of measures, even in the moments when there's no repentance and, and you got to separate, it's not from a heart that's just, that, that is just turned against. It's a heart that still prays for, that still begs for a work of God's Spirit in their life that they would be restored. What's our model for doing that? Paul says, you look Look inside. And when you look at yourself, it becomes this picture of, hmm, I remember what it's like to be caught in the trap of my own sin. I remember the pain and the embarrassment and the shame that consumes me in that. And I wish that someone would not just tell me the truth, but they would do it gently. George Washington Carver, 
there's so many cool stories, I think, associated with this guy in history. There is a quote by George Washington Carver that I absolutely love. It goes like this. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life, you will have been all of these. That's a brilliant statement. Okay then, Paul, how do we restore someone gently? How do we do that? Verse 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, you know what it's like to carry a burden. We all know what it's like to carry a burden. And you know what it's like to carry the guilt and the shame of having done something that's wrong. Most of us even may know what it's like to just want the relief of being caught so that at least you don't have to bear the weight of the guilt and the shame that you feel anymore. And what Paul says, well, from that place of empathy and understanding, bear the burdens of others as a means of gently restoring them. And there are burdens we all got to bear. But he says sometimes we can offer to carry the burdens of another until they are strengthened and able to, to bear that burden themselves. And one way we do that is by restoring someone caught in sin. Messed up. Messed up. Missed the mark. He says through gentleness. And you know it's gentleness. By the fact that it's not just that you're aware of where they messed up, but you know it's gentleness when you are mindful of your own condition as you are aware of how they have messed up. Now, real quick, one part of this passage says bear one another's burdens. The other part of this passage says bear, bear your own you know, load, right? It's like, how, what, what is that? Does that seem contradictory? I mean, what these seemingly two paradoxical ideas? Well, I, I think you just simply got to look at the flow. Paul says, start with, in the spirit of gentleness, bear the burdens of others. And then in the verses in between, he's saying what keeps us from bearing the burdens of others? What keeps us from being gentle? It's when we're arrogant. When we're arrogant and we think we're something more than we are. And so the bottom line, he says, stop comparing. No more comparing. When you realize the weight of your own sin, that one day we're going to answer for that before God, that helps us be gentle and bear the burden of others. The fruit of gentleness is produced in the life of a person who recognizes their own propensity to sin and has seen and realized that burden has been borne by someone else. And the clue to who that someone else is, verse 2 said, in bearing those burdens, you are fulfilling the law of who? 
Christ. Christ. Jesus is the chief burden bearer. And every follower of Jesus becomes a burden bearer as well. It is amazing to me reading about some of the most powerful figures in the Bible. Moses, Moses is described as the most gentle man of his day. And you think about Moses and you're like, do you know what he had to do? Do you know how tough that dude was? I mean, do you know what he had to deal with? Do you know the times he had to stand his ground? Do you know all that he really had to, to walk through? You, you think, and, and Moses was the picture of gentleness, it says. But I think the most obvious, most powerful, most miraculous picture. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your so, who said that? Jesus said that. Jesus said that. Is he weak? No, he, he could touch eyes that were blind and make them see. He, he could touch ears that were deaf and make them hear. He, he could feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. So much power, he could call down 10,000 angels if he wanted to destroy anything necessary. He could speak a word, one word, and an angry mob falls face down. He could speak one word, and a dead guy comes walking out of a tomb. In fact, he once spoke one word, and an entire universe came into existence. Jesus, who is gentle. Come on, think about this. He's not weak. He's not intimidated. We are talking about the most incredible picture of power that ever was, but he is gentle. I know. You know how I know? Because while I was yet a sinner, while we were yet sinners, he loved us. And he did it with some outstretched arms. 
a cross, a tree that became the most beautiful picture you have ever seen. And embrace that absorbed the wrath of God against my sin. My sin that meant a sentence of death, but the cross became that which absorbed the penalty that I should have paid. And with that price came a very tender invitation. Come. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest where at one time your soul was empty. At one time, there was a vacuum that made you want to clamor for all the glory you could steal from, but now you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your power. I thank you that it is true that when we think about what you have done, what you can do, God, there is no limit. And for us to understand how that's coupled today with this picture of gentleness, the most beautiful picture ever of power under control. God, what should have happened to us and instead, what has been made available to us through the cross, God, that is, that is just mind-blowing stuff today that, that ought to call every single one of us, whatever circumstance we are finding ourselves in right now. God, however we, we may be thinking about today how we've been mistreated. We have been, we're thinking about what, what, what wrong has been done. God, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to see how you, in gentleness, restored us. God, I'm asking for that kind of power in the lives of these who have gathered here today, for those who, God, are going to hear this talk along the way. God, may we know the reality. This is not fantasy. This is, may we know the reality of your spirit at work in us and a gentleness, a gentleness with so much power that lives are changed, hearts are made alive, and the emptiness of our soul is filled. God, today help us to know what to do with what you gave us. God, there are some of us that need to begin to respond differently to people. We need to, we need to begin to act differently towards some folks.
But God, it starts with our heart today. God, today. God, shape our heart. God, even as we sing in the next few moments, we think about these words, we think about, God, your call to us. God, help us to respond. Help us to respond. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray.